In the realm of sainthood, Ireland is most associated with two figures in particular, among several others, St. Patrick and St. Bridget. The key difference between both is that Patrick came as a slave from Britain, while Bridget was born into a form of slavery in Ireland sometime around 450 AD. So little is known for sure about her life because, unlike Patrick, Bridget left no historical record of her work. The storyteller Eddie Lenehan reminds us that while we celebrate the life of one of our patron saints with cards and badges and parades and regalia of all sorts, it's very difficult to get your hands on a St. Bridget's Day card. Much of what we know about Bridget comes from biographies of other saints that were written long after her lifetime. The first of these came around 650 AD. On this 1st of February, we go in search of the child that would become the woman described by scholars at the University of Notre Dame as one of the greatest leaders and evangelists Ireland has ever known. One of the first things I ask you to remember as we proceed in this episode is that many of the facts of her life were, and still are, disputed. Some believe she didn't exist at all. As I said, Bridget was born around 450 AD in Dundalk to a pagan chieftain and a Christian mother. It's largely agreed that her specific birthplace was Fogart, two miles from Dundalk. Her father is believed to have been Dovtok, a pagan petty king or chieftain. Her mother was a Christian bondswoman named Broshok, who was part of his household. Now it seemed Broshok may have been some type of slave because, before Bridget's birth, Dovtok was forced to sell the woman to a distant buyer, a druid in the kingdom of Connacht. However, the custom dictated that the offspring was reserved for the original owner, so when Bridget reached workable age, she was returned to his household and assumed the role once held there by her mother, grinding corn, washing the feet of guests, tending the sheep on the mountains, or herding the farm animals. It's believed she was welcomed with open arms by Dovtok, her father. In the absence of hard facts, Christian tradition developed certain legends around the early life of Bridget. Broshok had no rights over her own child. She had no appeal process, no defender. She did not even own her own child. But over the hut where she slept, it was alleged that, and I quote, a flame and a fiery pillar were seen. They thronged around her bed, the spectres of servitude, injustice and envy. Three clerics in white shining vestments, such as might attend for the christening of a royal baby, came to banish them and baptise the baby, Bridget. There were angels, but there was no drapery in the baby's cradle, but rather a curtain of flame hanging softly overhead. When the child was sleeping in the stable where her mother worked, the cow dung appeared to catch fire, but when the servants ran over, they found no heat in the blaze, just light. One of the advantages of her parenthood was that she possessed a strong disregard for the accident of her birth, that of an unequal union. Later in life, Bridget conversed easily with kings, but she treated slave girls as her sisters, whose freedom she sought with enthusiasm. Once she was conveyed back to Leinster and the household of her father, the slave girl Bridget submitted to her daily routine, but was capable of what could be described as unsettling gestures. When a beggar asked for alms, the young girl was very likely to hand him over one of the sheep from her flock. 
One time, five guests arrived and she was given five pieces of bacon to cook for them. A hungry dog was roaming around her vicinity. And like most dogs, when the f there's food involved, he licked her hand and whined. The young girl could not resist and gave him a piece of the bacon. Onlookers in the household complained her. But as trouble was breaking out, five pieces of bacon were somehow found in the pot. The stories of Bridget's youth all centre around the theme of her bounty and the intervention of supernatural assistance to fend off drastic punishment. One character in her early life, however, seemed immune to Bridget's charity and apparent minor miracles, and that was Dovetak's wife. She demonstrated complete resentment towards the girl, and in the end, in the interest of peace, her father attempted to sell Bridget, as he once did her mother, and this led to the most dramatic and significant episode in her young life. Her life changed when, one morning, her father summoned her from her toil and placed her in her chariot. As they drove away, the joyful Bridget spoke in language that felt as if it was straight from gospel narratives. Then she learned what was happening, and her joy quickly evaporated. The grouchy old man is alleged to have told her, It is not to honour you I am taking you, I am taking you to sell you. It will be the king's corn now that you'll have to grind. Her new home was to be with the King of Leinster. When the carriage arrived at his fortress, her father went in to negotiate the deal for her service. When she was waiting in the chariot, her father left his sword on the seat beside her, because he wasn't allowed to take it into the King's fortress. A leper suddenly appeared by the side of the vehicle looking for charity. It was unlikely that Bridget had ever set eyes on such a person, with his mournful eyes, ravaged face, and destroyed body. The story goes that her heart sank, because at that moment she had nothing to offer by way of charity. As her eyes searched inside the carriage, she caught sight of the jewels in the hilt of her father's sword and the seat. Incredibly, she took the weapon and handed it to the man at the side of the carriage. And this is a powerful example of the early compassion of the future saint. With her father inside the fortress negotiating her sale to the King of Leinster, Bridget was suddenly filled with dread. This was a somewhat spectacular gift of benevolence, but perhaps a bit irresponsible on her part. The king wanted to know why her father was so keen to sell his daughter, and Dovetok explained he could not keep her because she was too giving to the poor. His possessions were not safe, and more importantly, his wife could not cope with any of this. The king asked to see her, and so Dovetok went to retrieve her from the carriage. Immediately he noticed that his sword was gone, and this, by the way, was his prized sword. The earliest account of Bridget's life suggests that her father was mightily enraged. Bridget insisted, however, that she had given the weapon to God. In front of the king, who was a Christian, Bridget received a more sympathetic hearing. Despite his reliance on his sword for the dispensing of justice, he seems to have sensed that in the incident outside the fortress, a mere slave girl had lifted up the sword of the spirit against the sword of might, had spoken a challenge, had joined issue in some contest of magnitude and importance. Dovetok's day ended badly when he heard the King of Leinster say to him, Leave her alone, for her merit before God is greater than ours. And so Bridget was taken home. Whatever the reasons, the reality in that episode with the sword led to Bridget's release from her father's bondage. This may have been on the recommendation of the King of Leinster, or it may be because Dovetok wanted to bring about domestic harmony. 
Not only was she now free from slavery, but she felt entitled to disregard her father's wishes, especially when they came into conflict with her own Christian inclinations. The character of the woman was now emerging in this young girl. Having secured her freedom, her first mission was to provide comfort to her ailing mother, whose body was failing due to the excessive labour of her enslavement. The journey to her mother was taken against the wishes of her father, needless to say, but it is also worth noting that it involved travelling the width of the island of Ireland. Her mother was in charge of a mountain dairy where twelve cows were milked on a daily basis. Just as with her father's compound, the poor were also attracted to her mother's dairy in the hope of receiving charity. Bridget's generosity again got her into trouble, and when supplies of milk began to run low, her mother's master summoned the herdsman for an explanation. Such was the power of Bridget's personality that the man apparently refused to speak ill of her in her absence. Apparently, and shockingly, Bridget submitted herself once more to bondage for the sake of her mother. The master and mistress visited the dairy to investigate for themselves. There they found Bridget singing happily at her work, surrounded by bowls of milk and firkins of butter. It seems she was a particularly efficient dairymaid. She began working for this master in the role of bondwoman, and now began washing her visitors' feet and serving their meals. One particular party of visitors brought with them an empty hamper, eighteen hands high, in which to take away their store of butter. But what they saw in front of them didn't appear as if it would fill even half the hamper. Bridget began, with great composure, to fill her supply into the hamper. She filled and filled and filled with yellow butter. But where it came from, nobody could see. Believing that they were in the presence of the supernatural, and remember too the circumstances of her birth and childhood, the kindly druid, possibly her new master, conferred on Bridget the cows and all the produce of the mountain dairy. Bridget pleaded for something else, however. She begged for her mother's freedom, due to her age, her ill health, her inability to continue working. This request was granted, and it seems that with the help of the Druid Master, who afterwards became a Christian, Bridget was able to see her mother installed in permanent security and peace. It was at this point that she returned to her father, and her mother makes no further appearances in the records of Bridget's life after this time. While we don't know exactly what age Bridget was at this time, it was a period where she had taken increasing control of her life. With her mother's future secured, and now back in her father's household, she was well equipped to face another parental challenge. Dovetok was determined to exercise some influence over his daughter's life and decided to try and arrange her marriage. Not much is known about the chosen husband apart from the fact that he was a poet. Now, this might seem like a humble choice for the daughter of a chieftain, but there is something we should know about 5th century poets. In simple terms, the poet was well-heeled and well-regarded. He was well-paid, well-dressed, well-fed and well-watered. He had a swagger, property and sometimes even servants. He had the seat of honour at table and was always offered the best cut from the joint. Kings and noblemen grovelled in his presence, and those who crossed his path always experienced his wrath. And by the way, why was this the case? Why did the wealthy and influential fawn all over the poet? The truth was that his pen was seen as far more dangerous than any invading army, and the nobility were terrified of becoming the subject of a satirical work by a poet. As a result, 
the poet got his way quite a lot of the time, and, incidentally, he was generally an egotistical, arrogant and spoiled individual. It should be noted, however, that not every poet reached these giddy heights in 5th century Ireland. He had to pass through a sort of course that lasted 12 years, and, if he emerged successfully, he was considered to be a man of great knowledge. Bridget's father, therefore, in selecting a poet as his son-in-law, was demonstrating himself to be a shrewd operator, as this may give him certain levels of protection. There was only one problem, however. Bridget was having none of it. It wasn't personal to the selected suitor. She rejected the idea of marriage full stop. Despite the taunting of her stepbrothers, Bridget opted to become what the ancient Irish called a Virgin of Christ. The first nuns of 5th century Ireland continued to live in their own homes after they had consecrated their lives to God. They spent their days as best they could between service to the mission, corporal works of mercy and prayer. Now their service to mission usually took the form of things like needlework. They crafted vestments and altar cloths and tapestries to adore newly built churches. The security of their vocation depended very much on their family circumstances. They suffered in their isolation from a lack of support from community life, and they were often persecuted by their families. From the moment she secured her mother's liberty and overcame her father's control, Bridget began the organization of women into a monastic convent. When she was professed as a nun, she had seven others with her, and these eight nuns never seemed to be separated. How they were maintained in their work, whether by the church or by almsgiving, is not clear. Despite entering the convent, Bridget did not live an enclosed life, and instead became one of the most unrelenting travellers in the country. Dressed all in white, in a homespun habit, a veil and a cloak, with her hair uncut, the future St. Bridget became one of the most fascinating studies in 5th century Irish monasticism. That is the great Dr. Conor Reedy there, our historian, and yet another episode of Tipperary's Hidden Histories. We're up to episode 56, can you believe, at this point. Amazing.